0: Hey History Buffs! Before we get started, I wanted to remind everyone to subscribe to Fucked Up History if you haven't done so already. I ask for so very little, it's the least you can fucking do. Welcome back! This is the second part of a two-part episode on the history of fake news. If you haven't listened to the last episode, I highly recommend you do so as it makes for the perfect companion piece for today's episode. We'll be waiting for you. If you're too lazy to listen to the last episode, here's a brief recap. Previously
1: on Life to Live, Max just remembered that it was a man who shot him. I ain't going to prison. I didn't tell you the whole truth about my father. Tell him now, Laney. He's getting married.
0: You two just got divorced. You haven't heard who the bride is. Oh, And now you're all caught up. Guys, we're living in very polarized times if you hadn't noticed if you've been living under a fucking rock. And it's been leaving people feeling more and more like they don't know what exactly to believe when it comes to what they hear and read in the news. Today, we're going to discuss the origins of how we got here and what, if anything, we can do to get ourselves out of it before it's too late. This is the fucked up history we're living in now. I'm your host, Mark Brendan Rosenberg, and this is Fucked Up History. So picking up where we left off from last week's episode, a code of ethics for journalists was established after the fall of yellow journalism and media continued to truck along until around the 1990s. You had respected journalists like Walter Cronkite and Cokie, Coke Cokie Roberts delivering the news for the most part, and no one really questioned whether or not they were being lied to. I mean, Peter Jennings wasn't going on 20-minute rants about how the deep state and Hillary Clinton were running a child sex ring in the basement of a pizza parlor. But something drastically changed in the mid-1990s in the way we digest news. I asked John, what
1: happened? Let's take those one at a time. So in the case of foreign news, beginning in the 1990s, the American core of foreign correspondents from established news organizations, networks like CBS and newspapers like the Baltimore Sun and the Boston Globe and so forth, those began to decrease in size. The New York Times hasn't. The Wall Street Journal still has a big core. But, for example, the Boston Globe had, you know, half a dozen people abroad. They have none. The Baltimore Sun had the same number abroad. They have none. Newsweek has none. Chicago Tribune has a, a steep decline. And so those foreign correspondents who were very important, they have dwindled. And why? Well, one of the reasons they've dwindled is because in order to be competitive now and to fight for readers, you realize that you want to focus on local news if you can. Uh, And foreign news is very expensive because most Americans don't pay as much attention to foreign news as they do domestic news. And foreign news is very expensive, very expensive to get. And as a result, the number of reporters who are going abroad and looking abroad, who were with those classic, old, famous newspapers and, and the networks have decreased. The idea of having a, re- a person with a network stationed in Rome when they would be on the air, how many times in a year? You know, they're not, not on every night, right? Maybe once a week if they're in Rome. And even if they travel around to other places, they're just not on that much. And yet they cost lots and lots of money. Network foreign correspondents are very expensive. They have agents, for one thing. I mean, they could command more money. And they need more support than a print journalist might need. So foreign news in in the traditional sense has has declined. That is, if you look in terms of the numbers of foreign correspondents, not all newspapers, the Washington Post, for example, has now kind of made a comeback. They're doing a much better job on foreign news than they were a few years ago. So that's one change. The other change is that the nature of journalism generally, that is the establishment press in general, uh, is under assault. And that's because, first of all, the business model doesn't work the way it did before. The old business model had uh, you had classified ads. You could make a lot of money with classified ads. You had big department stores and displayed ads. But now, of course, you can go online and, and get those advertisements. And Those advertisements can be targeted at specific audiences rather than a big mass newspaper in which you hope you know, you're going to hit the right person. A mass newspaper operates on the principle that with ads that if you just throw a bucket of water out of the window, you're going to hit enough people. But now that doesn't necessarily mean the bucket of ads that you're throwing out the window are as efficient in terms of reaching potential customers as doing it in a more targeted fashion. If I wanna buy a used car or something that you'd find in a classified ad, I could go get that information much more efficiently than going to a newspaper. The second problem is people who want news, if they're interested in sports news, they can go to all kinds of sites to get sports news without going to their daily newspaper. And there was a model there of cross-subsidization. So sports news would have a huge read- readership, but very low-cost news, where investigative reporting or foreign reporting is very expensive. And so now you don't have that cross-subsidization because if you want sports news, you go to a place that provides sports news. Only sports news. You can read sports news all day long and not pay very much for it, if anything. So the, the old model has broken down. The cross-subsidization by, by having people pay for all kinds of news, even if they only read some of it, doesn't exist. And therefore, because those, the circulation of those papers go down, they're less attractive to advertisers, who in any case can reach, reach their potential customers in more efficient ways. And so the old model, which was so strong and produced very high profits, doesn't exist anymore. So now, how does that relate to sensational news? Well, what happens is now you can provide all kinds of people in this environment because of technology can be journalists. People who have no journalism standards, have no editors to look over their shoulders, and who can be biased. And that's become a kind of new, uh, not kind of, it's become a new norm. And you realize you can attract uh, listeners and readers and viewers by following that model. And not only does uneducated, self-appointed journalists get some kind of audience, but then establishment media can also behave in, in somewhat the same way. So you can look at Fox and you could look at CNN, they're highly opinionated. CNN pretends that it still wants to be an establishment newspaper, but it's very liberal. I say that as a person who happens to be when it comes to voting, very liberal, but I'm looking at this in an objective way. And CNN is, you know, CNN, honestly, to my mind, is disgraceful. Maybe it's not as biased as Fox News, but it's biased, and it has very little reporting on it. You know, I used to work abroad as a journalist, and I could be in, I remember once being in Czechoslovakia, and i didn't have anything to do for an afternoon. I just turned on and watched CNN all afternoon. They had reporters all over the world. They don't have reporters all over the world today. They don't even have reporters all over Washington. And mostly <laughs> they're telling you what they think as opposed to really doing serious reporting. Most of it's made up of talking people to tell you what they think about the news. And they've discovered that in order to keep that readership, the best way to do it is to appeal to a partisan, the partisans who, who want that kind of news. So in a way, we've gone back. And in fact, not even in a way. We have gone back to a time that's more like the early 19th century when when the news was highly partisan and newspapers were owned by political parties. The difference is they're not owned by political parties now. They're actually independent but have chosen an economic model in which they can be which they can make money being partisan. There are lots of newspapers out there who try to be try to maintain their old standards. But again, I say this is a liberal. You you can look at papers like the New York Times and the Washington Post, and you can admire very much the reporting they're doing, say, on Donald Trump, the information that they're digging up. But you can't escape the fact that there is a, a clear bias that appears in those papers. I don't think it gets in the way of the good reporting. I think there's a view in many establishment newspapers that Donald Trump is an aberration and should be treated as such. Fact is, though, he was elected, like it or not. And so... I worry very much that as a result of the economic models that have changed, and the fact that Trump exists as a president who seems to throw all of our institutions off balance, whether it's the judicial system or the press, puts them on the defensive and makes them behave in erratic ways, we're moving in a way that's much that's going to be much more partisan and difficult to roll back when you have a president that's more normal.
0: So things are clearly not normal right now, including the news. And I wondered... Are the principled ethics of journalism that became commonplace after the time of yellow journalism that we discussed in our last episode still applied today, or are we just kind of living in the wild west of news media?
1: I think that journalists who grew up, who, who go to journalism schools today, and journalists who came of age in the last 20 years still, when they look at themselves in the morning, believe in those principles of getting multiple sides of a story, being empathetic, being fair, using sources rather than what you think might be true, being objective. I mean, it's never possible. Everybody knows that to be t- totally objective as a human being. But to try to step back and, and just be really fair about the news and give it in a, in a way that is not about what you think, but what but gives nuance. And I think there are lots of journalists who believe that. I think, by the way, if you went to CNN, they tell you they did that. I'm, I'm sure they tell you they did that. But they don't. <laughs> but they tell you they did. And the reason for that is that that's what they recognize is as the old professional model. And so I think it still does exist. And, and I think it exists in the minds of many people. I think all kinds of forces, the technology forces, the technology forces combined with the market realities, all of those are pushing us in ways that may make that old objective model less resilient than it was before. You know, it's important to go back, I think, and point out that the idea of fair, objective journalism wasn't something that just a bunch of journalists came up with some day. They were sitting in a newsroom and said, hey, we ought to do this. This is a professional norm. In fact, professional journalists did get to see that as a norm. They began to see that there needed to be those kinds of standards. But those standards came to exist because it was a way to make a hell of a lot of money. Because if you had a paper that wasn't partisan and reached vast numbers of people, a mass market newspaper, you were going to make more money. And so fair reporting meant you would be more appealing to a wide range of people. That's why it worked. That model can't work quite as well for the reasons I gave you. Advertising and, and Craigslist and things like that, which are a challenge to the traditional advertising model. Those things then are likely to have a strong influence on what the professional norms are.
0: Now, big companies like Amazon own the Washington Post. at and owns CNN, and I have my own issues with at and Please see my Twitter feed for any ranting you'd like about them. I wondered, does the fact that large companies now own media outlets factor into how they report their news?
1: Well, let's take Amazon. Uh, I think actually there's a model of journalism out there of people who are wealthy effectively subsidizing news or being willing to res- to have responsible news. So there are two examples of this. Uh, one is the Christian Science Monitor was created by Mary Baker-, Baker Eddy, the head of the Christian Science Church, because she saw that there was lots of yellow journalism, and she thought the way for the one of the good things the church could do Was to sponsor a newspaper that was not yellow and was very responsible and in fact the christian science monitor really exemplified that i might say that i worked for them for a while i'm not trying to be uh self-referential here they just did a they did a wonderful job of being a fair newspaper i loved reporting for them because you never had to put any torque on a story you just tell it the washington post is another really good example it was bought by a financier named eugene Mayer in the 1930s he had a lot of money And he decided to take a post, a paper, the Post, which wasn't that good a paper, to be honest with you. In fact, some people would say that the best paper in Washington, D.C. in the 1930s was was the Baltimore Sun, which would circulate over here. And he bought it. He put a lot of money into it. And he made it into a great newspaper. And he did it because he didn't have to make money. He wanted to create an institution that would do a public service. He didn't go bankrupt doing it. I mean, you know, he made the Post made money for a long, long time. But the point is, he, he could have made money in other ways as well. But he decided to do it that way. And now Bezos owns the paper and he doesn't need the Washington Post to make a lot of money for him to, to live well. He wants it to make money. And we don't know because it's privately owned, but you know, it's, a, it's doing a, a wonderful job these days. And it's a much better paper than it was five or six years ago. And so this model of thinking about it being subsidized, not simply by ads, but by people with money is not a bad model. And those people who, even though they may not want their own, I don't know, I suppose Bezos doesn't like Amazon to be covered, although I would think the Post, I've seen the Post cover Amazon from time to time, but I'm sure they, you know, they got to think a little bit about how they do that because they also have to be credible, right? They don't write anything negative about Amazon, then they're not a credible newspaper, but they have to think about that. But on balance, I think that's very positive. I think that's a very positive thing. And I think we need to see that as a model advertising is a form of subsidization of news so if advertising isn't going to work you've got to look at other models one model is you charge more for the product and we have examples of how you get good journalism out of that bloomberg news charges a lot of money you know if you want to get a bloomberg terminal it's about sixteen hundred dollars a month but you get not only good reporting on markets on the economy but you get good reporting on politics they have more journalists abroad today than all the newspaper correspondents and broadcast correspondents who have disappeared from the establishment media. It's in a niche, of course, but it exists. That's one way to subsidize, you charge more. Another way is philanthropy. (coughs) And so we have to think about that. I think the New York Times is doing well right now. I think that's partly an anti-Trump phenomenon because so many people are so concerned. It's sort of like when you have a catastrophe, like a hurricane coming in, everybody wants to go out and buy a newspaper and find out what's happening. Well, we have a kind of hurricane kind of president. And so the subscriptions to The Times online have gone way up. They're making money right now. Maybe they can sustain that in a post-Trump world. So there are ways. There aren't going to be as many newspapers. They're not going to be in. They're going to be gradually. None of them will be on paper. They won't be ink on paper anymore. I think there still could be some very, very good newspapers out there that do a good job. But it'll be a smaller number. Where we really have to worry, and that's not about the Spanish-American War and foreign news, because small newspapers don't have foreign correspondence, but where we really have to worry is uh, local news. Local news is in terrible, terrible shape, and that's a big, big problem, because city hall has to be covered, state government has to be covered, and insults to the environment locally that have a huge impact on health quality of school systems, all of that needs constant scrutiny in the same way that Washington does. And we're moving way away from that at a rapid pace. And that's, a terrifying, that's terrifying for our country.
0: Sometimes it seems like journalism has become more opinion than fact. Sean Hannity has a lot of opinions. Most of them are fat like he is. But Anderson Cooper has a lot of opinions as well. Back in the day, and still in many papers to this day, there's an op-ed section of a newspaper. Op-ed means the opposite of the editorial page, and the topics can range on any number of things. These op-ed pieces are opinions as labeled in the paper and do not have an affiliation with the newspaper itself. These are standalone opinions of the author and are to be read as such. But with so many people on cable news giving opinions sprinkled in with a few facts here and there, it becomes very easy to understand how and why people watching Sean Hannity or Anderson Cooper think that everything they're saying is fact. They are, after all, on a news channel. This is where things get a little fishy. I asked John how to explain how these opinion-based quote-unquote news shows are not actually really just news shows.
1: Right. Well, first of all, the House of Journalism has many rooms. And one of those rooms is a room where you have people who write opinion. Sometimes they're brilliant, like Walter Lippman, and sometimes they're like Laura Ingram, right, who, are, who just have a, have a point of view to push and are, are highly partisan. But we've had people like that all along, and, and they've appeared on the op-ed piece page, you know, opinion columnists. The problem is now we have a hell of a lot more opinion columnists than we had in the past. And they're not supervised the way they were before so they can say things that are even more outlandish. And so they're only one kind of journalists. And the problem is because those people exist the way they exist, you only go to them to be confirmed in what you believe because we all have this feeling that that we want to we have our own beliefs, conservative or liberal, and we want to hear somebody articulate them so that we can then be reinforced in our view. The problem is that the world's a complex place and you need to hear views that actually challenge what your view is. In other words, you need to to hear countervailing points of view so that you can test what you believe and go through that very difficult mental process of saying, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I know I hate to think of that because I'm wrong about that. I'm probably wrong about this. And how do I reconcile all of those things? So what audiences need to do today And the palliative, one of the palliatives, is to, whenever they hear something, ask themselves, could that really be true? And second of all, listen to people who have points of view different from their own. So I often listen to, to Fox News. And sometimes I listen to Fox News and I think, wow, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of that. That's probably right. That's an important exercise. Of course, I make my living thinking about news. So it's easier, maybe relatively easier for me to be able to dip in and out. but. That's what, the public, that's what the public needs to do. And it, and it can be an agonizing process you're listening, because you're listening to things and people say things that you think are so wrong. And you want to hear people who tell you that you're right. Confirmation bias.
0: These days we hear the term fake news as much as we used to hear stupid punchlines from eighty sitcoms. I mean, fake news really is what you talk about, Willis, of 2019. I asked John what he thought the constant... Term fake news being used by the president would have on the news media moving forward.
1: Interestingly enough, uh, Donald Trump claims that he invented the term fake news. And that's not true at all.
0: Wait, Donald Trump lied about something? Impossible.
1: In fact, there was a book written in 1912 called Fake News. So it's an old, it's more than 100 years old as a phrase even. That's number point number one. Point number two is that the term "fake news" is itself a concoction that is distorted. So what's fake news? If, if a journalist writes something and makes a mistake, which can happen I mean, news is complicated. Journalists make mistakes no matter how hard they try. That's not fake news. That's a mistake. If a journalist purposely writes something that's wrong, I mean, purposely says something that's inaccurate, that is fake news. that. Costs, to fake news. If a politician doesn't like what a journalist says, and therefore decides to discredit, discredit it by calling it fake news because it just doesn't reflect the president's point of view or the political leader's point of view, that's not really fake news. So the problem is the term fake news covers all kinds of possibilities. And I think we have to be clear about what fake news really is. Fake news is news that intentionally is intentionally inaccurate. That's important. And I might add, if a, if a president says something that is clearly inaccurate, that's fake news, too. Now, you know, you have to ask yourself if the president knows it's inaccurate or just doesn't care. <laughs> I mean, those are different. Those are important differences, though. That's why I think it's perilous to talk about Trump lying. When you say somebody lies, you have to know what's in their head. You can say the president says something that's untrue if you can demonstrate it's untrue. But that's different from lying. And so lying is hard. Lying means you have to have evidence that they actually purposely said something untrue. So I think that's, first of all, I think we have to to be trained to begin to think of the term fake news in a much more focused way than just this, everything we don't like is fake news. Anything that is inaccurate in the paper is fake news because those things aren't true. The term fake news becomes meaningless when used that way. The problem with the way fake news is used today, not only by Trump, but people who are emulating Trump, generally causes a decline in public view of its institutions in this case i mean in the case of in this case of course institution of the press when you can say that everything the press says is fake news you then make it very difficult for the public to believe those things that are clearly true and that they need to know to make good decisions and so that's a very worrisome development because democratic government depends on credibility if people don't believe the, what the press says, or they don't believe in what the justice system does, they don't believe essentially the justice system is full of well-intentioned people who are trying to do the right thing. Doesn't believe, they don't believe journalism is full of journalists who are trying to do the right thing. They don't believe the FBI is full of agents who are trying to do the right thing. If, and you go down a long list of institutions that the president has discredited, then you actually may get a short-term benefit if you're a leader, but you've done long-term damage to the country. It's a lack of respect. And it's also not true. You know, it's also not true, although many people think so, that all politicians are corrupt and they're terrible. Actually, there are many politicians who work very hard on both sides of the aisle to do the right thing. They may not agree on what the right thing is, but they're actually well-meaning. And by discrediting these people all the time, we actually really hurt our country. And for a political leader to do that, as Trump has done, has damaging consequences. And I think we should all be very worried about that.
0: So here we are, face-to-face, a couple of silver spoons in 2019. I asked John, did he think the news media would be the respected presence it once was back in the 50s and 60s? Or have we just entered a new era of, well, fake news?
1: I hope so. I I don't feel I can say categorically it will be so. I think what what I can say categorically is we're going to live in a world now with many kinds of journalism. And a lot of it's going to be partisan, because the nature of communication has changed to the degree it has. We can hope that there will be pockets of news gathering and dissemination that will be reliable, fact-based, and responsible. And I I believe that some of that will exist, but I don't know how much. And I'm not a Pollyanna about this. Uh, I mean, I don't want to be a Cassandra, but I don't want to be a Pollyanna, because I think. It's hard to know. It's really hard to know. I think we've gone back to a time that's quite a lot like the beginning of our country, where we had journalists who were saying all kinds of wild things and were very, very partisan. And you know, Mark, if you think about it, and maybe this is a good closing point, the problem with fake news is that it's not a new problem. It's an old problem. It's actually really a problem of the Enlightenment. As soon as the church and the state lost control of information... As soon as we had movable type and the capacity for individuals to begin to think and express themselves and to write for the masses, and that didn't happen overnight. Gutenberg didn't have movable type, and the next day we had democracy. But you can't have democracy without – you could never have had democracy without movable type. The first book that Gutenberg publishes is a Bible, so it looks like the stuff that had already been published. But gradually, you start having people express themselves. At the very same time that happens, you have worry – by the same people who are expressing themselves, that there are charlatans out who are out there who are making up fake news. And so Ben Johnson, the playwright, one of the, one of the plays he writes, this is several hundred years ago, right? It's called The Staple of News, and it's about news from Mars. The Enlightenment, which means you have a great mass of people who can think for themselves, is, has always been a, a wider opportunity for people to say things that are untrue. That was controlled during the 20th century, most of the 20th century, because the instruments of information, the press, book publishing, television, were in the hands of a relatively small group of people who began to have real standards. But now it's not in the hands of a small group of people. You're doing this podcast. You've made yourself into a journalist who interviews people.
0: Y'all, I just got called out on my own show. Well, at least I have more credibility than Tomi Lauren. Whatever the fuck that bobble-headed girl's name is. But that's, like, not hard to get.
1: And you don't belong to a network. You're self-appointed. I'm not saying you're not doing a good job. I'm not saying you're not responsible.
0: Thank God, because I need constant praise, or I lose it.
1: But now anybody can do, can be a journalist and an editor, all wrapped into one. And that changes the equation, and it takes us back to the fundamental problem of the Enlightenment. How do we have an environment in which people can express themselves and think for themselves and not have that environment polluted, which becomes just as easy, becomes much easier at the same time that people also have the freedom? With that freedom comes a challenge.
0: Popularity in the news comes and goes in waves. Right now, we're at the crest of a constant news cycle that in years to come will be studied in wonderment by journalism students. It's important to remember that no matter what you believe, it's always necessary to remind oneself that good old-fashioned analytical thinking never goes out of style. In 2020, it's very important to be your own fact checker. Look for multiple sources of the same story, see how the reporting differs, and make a judgment for yourself. Just because someone is reporting something that you don't like or agree with doesn't mean it's fake. Our news cycle has become almost cult-like. You either agree or disagree, and there's no in-between. But the news and politics, just as in life, have a lot of gray area, and it's important to remember that. If you really want the simple facts of what's going on in the world, there are still places you can find it. You just have to be ready to hear things that you may not agree with. I'd like to thank John Maxwell Hamilton once again for joining us. The link to his book Journalism's Roving Eye is available in the show notes. I'd also like to thank Darian Shulman for composing our original music and John Wynn for doing all of our artwork. If you want to stay connected, follow us at History Buffs Pod on Instagram and on Twitter. If you like the podcast, please be sure to leave us a great review and literally tell every single person you've ever met, even strangers on the street. We're going to be taking a break next week for the Thanksgiving holiday, but we'll be back with all new episodes in December. So stay tuned. I'm your host, Mark Brendan Rosenberg, and this is Fucked Up History. See you soon.